This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're talking about the processes behind flash floods. So my name is Brian McInerney, and I was the senior hydrologist for the National Weather Service Forecast Office in Salt Lake City for roughly 30 years. Brian has spent a career watching intense storms form on radar screens and using his experience as a hydrologist to help determine if those storms are going to produce flash floods. You know, you start off as an intern, and then I went as a journeyman, and then I was the senior hydrologist. Um, and I did that for 30 years, and my, my tasks and my job were to convey the science of hydrology to most of the state of Utah, and that was municipalities, water districts, national parks, and the subject matters were water supply, flash floods, and uh, debris flow from post-wildfire burns. It sounds like you started as an intern, but kind of what, what sparked your interest in, in thinking about flash floods and hydrology? You know, you have those moments that change your life. They alter your life. And I went skiing at the University of Minnesota's golf course, and it was really cold. And I was cross-country skiing, and it was getting dark. And I, I thought, I'm, you know, I had to walk home. I didn't have a car. And I stopped in a building just to warm up because it was frigid temperatures. And a guy walked by, and I just said hi. And he said hi to me. And he said, do you go to school here? And I said, no, I go to law school down the street. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a professor in hydrology. And we talked about uh, what, it, what it's like to be a hydrologist. And he said, if you're interested in a graduate program, come back tomorrow and we can chat. He had to go. And so my wheels started spinning. I went back the next day and decided to stop law school and enter into a graduate program in hydrology. Throughout your career, have you gotten to see a lot of big flash floods? You know, most of the flash floods that I've encountered were post-flash floods because I was in the office forecasting them. I was in the office looking at radar data. And you watched them form and you've, you've monitored them as they're happening. A cool way yeah, to experience Yeah, it's like a video them. game. You know, yeah. you get to the office. I go in later when I, when I was um, working the flash flood shift and, you know, you get five really big monitors set up that are high resolution monitors and you put on all your displays like satellite radar the atmosphere what does it look like from the balloon sounding and a bunch of different data and then you kind of wait and you know i'd eat my lunch and i'd glance at the screens and you'd see maybe a few things popping up and then it would get going and then you had to look at it and kind of figure out how much rain, how much intensity, uh, where were they going to go? Were two storms going to collide? And then you would get on the phone and start issuing flash flood warnings to the appropriate people to warn for it. And I found that was, was a really nice part of the job because people were very thankful that you called and, and gave them advance warnings so they could move machinery out of a river bottom or in Zion National Park or some of the other parks, they could close areas it was very satisfying to, to help people in that respect. You know, with, with watching and thinking about these flash floods, can you kind of talk about what are the key ingredients to, to a flash flood happening? At 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., every weather service office in the country launches a weather balloon with an instrument on the bottom that looks at temperature, pressure, moisture, and wind. And so we look at how fast are the winds going because if the storms are moving really fast, 
you're going to get rained on for a couple of minutes and then it's going to go away. If the storms are moving quite slowly, then you could get a lingering thunderstorm. Also, do we have cloud cover now? And if we do, that's going to suppress uh, convection or the lifting mechanism that's going to produce thunderstorms. Is it cold air at the surface? And if it is, then we've got uh, a very moist air mass that's cold. When it heats, it's going to rise. And then what is the vertical aspect of the atmosphere look like? Is it getting colder much faster the higher you go? And if that's the case, you know you're going to have, as the air mass lifts, it's going to start lifting faster and faster, and you're going to get much bigger thunderstorms. So you look at all of these ingredients, but really it's moisture, it's, it's flow, uh, you know, how fast are these going? And then the location of where the moisture is. Is it prone to flash floods? And, and a lot of the reason why they brought hydrologists into uh, the forecast offices, which are all meteorologists, I was the only hydrologist in the office, it's because the meteorologists are very good at atmospheric conditions, uh, forecasting weather. But when you look at areas on the ground that may or may not spawn a flash flood, you need to have some education on how topography works, soils, vegetation aspect, all of these things. Because if you have that giant rain event and say you're in Nebraska over a flat cornfield, it's not going to produce a flash flood. It's just going to uh, create a lot of moisture in the soils and, and it's good for the plants. Utah, on the other hand, has very little moisture. It has very steep slopes and, and in size canyons. And so all of these things in com combination with the atmospheric conditions is a, is a high flash flood threat. It's one of the most flash flood prone areas in the country. And for you in uh, Moab, all you have to do is look outside. If, if a rain event were to happen on these rocks, it's not going to infiltrate. You don't have a lot of soils. You don't have a lot of vegetation. So it runs off to the lowest point. And over thousands of years, that lowest point has been an incised canyon. We have a lot of slot canyons. We have a lot of dry washes that the water doesn't infiltrate. So it creates these massive flows in a very short period of time. And if you're down there, it's incredibly dangerous. And we've seen every year we've had fatalities uh, due to people being in these low areas and not watching the weather or just getting stuck because they can't get out. Can you talk about the, the diversity of flash flood types that, that are out there and what they kind of could look like? Yeah, so if we, if we look at what we just spoke of, there's two, two major ways you can get these flash floods. One is a thunderstorm activity, which is localized. The other is wide, a big synoptic weather system moving in off the California coast in the form of an atmospheric river. We'll look at those two. If you look at thunderstorms, think of drainages in southern Utah, especially down by the border in the Grand Staircase. You have incised canyons right next to each other all the way across the southern part of the border, and you have a thunderstorm. Now, the question is, is that thunderstorm going to be moving up canyon as it, as it forms, you know, the direction of flow from the storm, or is it going to be moving down canyon? If it's moving up canyon, then what you have is, is think of you have a watering can on a, on a small little sandy hillside. As you move up, the, the water has time to drain out as you move the can up to the top of this little, say, rock hill. Now take that same watering can and start at the top and move it down this little 
you know, a little, a little rock face, your flow is concentrated faster and it's, and you get more water in a big surge. If your thunderstorm is moving down Canyon, those are the most dangerous. Now, if we have a thunderstorm that's moving across all these canyons, what you're going to get is a finite amount of water in each canyon. And it's going to rain for a bit, and then it's going to move on and rain on the next canyon and move on. And you don't get the peak flow that you worry about. When we see the storms moving cross basin, we feel relieved that that's not bad. When they move down basin, then we get concerned pretty quick because that is something that uh, is going to produce a bigger peak flow than if the storm was moving up the canyon. If they're stationary and you have enough rain, then that's another problem. And that's just as bad uh, as a downslope moving storm because they just park there and they reform and they train over these areas. They're also very dangerous. The storm that killed uh, the people in 2016 in Hilldale, uh, what happened is it, it kind of stalled over uh, the area for a brief bit on the first flash flood. And then another one came and uh, merged with another storm and it produced a phenomenal amount of rain right over that area and it stalled just for a bit. And it was a, a record flood. Then that whole thunderstorm moved up into Zion National Park and killed more people as it moved. And it just raged for like two and a half hours. Usually these storms last for 20 minutes. So it's direction, it's rain event, and then the, the duration of the storm itself. Is it gonna rain really hard and then fall apart? Or is it just gonna reform and stay there and just keep reforming and raining and raining and raining? And that's some of the deadliest storms that we've seen. Is there kind of a, a range of speeds with which the water can be moving in during a flash flood event? Like how, uh -huh. how fast can, how fast are some of this, how fast is the water coming down in some of these events? When I was living in Chicago, I remember seeing, you know, some of those old footages and I'm, you know, I was born in 1960 of, of uh, flash floods. And I used to think it was so fast, like, like crazy fast. But when you actually look and you, you start doing analysis and you look at other people's research, in uh, areas that are very steep walled canyons and, and have a lot of relief, they can move, you know, 10 miles an hour, which you think that's not very fast at all. You know, I can run 10 miles an hour. Uh, and, and a lot of flow you see is about four miles an hour. So roughly between four miles an hour and 10 miles an hour. And in super steep areas, it gets higher with larger flows. Like if you have a dam break, that energy pushing down the canyon can make it go up to, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour. But for flash floods, what we used to look at, and we would say, there's a storm that's maybe 10 miles away from you, that's gonna get there in about an hour. Or if it was, a, a, it was the slope wasn't as steep, then we change it a little bit and say, you know, it's gonna get there maybe in about 30 minutes or maybe 20 minutes, if it was a kind of a flatter ground. And it, it has to do with where is the storm and how steep and how vegetated the, the ground is that'll dictate how fast the water goes once it hits the ground. And I think there was, there was this misnomer that people would think they can outrun it. And that's not the case. If anything, if you're, if you're in a, a canyon, a dry wash, don't go down canyon, go, go up the sides if you find you're stuck and you have no other alternative. 
I mean, first off, don't even go in there if you think it's going to be a flash flood day. But if you find yourself in there and, and you hear uh, or see flash floods coming and it's picking up, don't go down Canyon because you won't be able to outrun it because it's, a, you know, four to four to 10 miles an hour and you're in uneven terrain. Go to your left or your right and start climbing. And that's a bad place to be anyways. I'm wondering, how are we thinking about how climate change is going to impact these events that create these large floods? Yeah, um, climate change is, has, is affecting us and it's been affecting us for, in earnest for about 20 years now. The idea that climate change is a myth is, is folly. This science is well understood. 98% of the scientists that do this research all agree and, and these are the people that publish their research. It's happening. We're causing it, right? So if for the listeners that are out there thinking it's just um, pseudoscience, uh, you need to wrap your head around this for you and your children and your grandchildren, that this is going to uh, make life hard and make life very different for us. Because now what you see is we are warming our atmosphere at, at a rate that's expected to be about a 10 degree Fahrenheit increase across most of Utah in the, by 2100. Each degree centigrade, which is roughly two degrees Fahrenheit, each degree centigrade of warming allows the atmosphere to hold 10% more water. So what that means is these storms, when you think small, like localized, like thunderstorms, Thunderstorm activity and flash flood activity is, is enhanced. And I, we've seen this when I was the hydrologist. We would have some flash floods that we would look at the rain events and think, man, that was, that was a big event. And then I would go back and look at the, the, uh, what's called the NOAA Atlas 14 to see for that point on the map, how often does this rain event occur? And we were seeing 100-year events, meaning 1% chance of this event happening on any day probability wise. And some were 200 to 500 year events and they were happening frequently. And you would think, what, what is changing this? Well, I being the, the climate change scientist, I had a pretty good idea that this is what was going on. And so take that alone when you're gonna have thunderstorms that are much more intense. Uh, you're gonna have longer periods of dry weather of drought conditions due to some other atmospheric conditions that, you know, I don't know if we want to go into, it's kind of a, a bigger story, but more high pressure over the West uh, is, is dominating the weather, meaning longer periods of drought followed by intense weather events fueled by this 10% increase for each degree centigrade. And also understand it's like compound interest for the next degree centigrade it doesn't mean you just have another 10 percent of water it's just 10 percent of that part that you've just heated up and now let's bring in the aspect of wildfires when you have these long periods of very hot weather you know incredibly hot dry conditions low humidities and the the fuels are drying out over a season your wildfire threat is increased. And the science has shown that we're going to see more wildfire threats throughout Utah. We used to have June was our month of wildfire activity followed by a decrease because we would have the monsoon move in, temperatures would cool down, we'd have periodic rains that, that were very nice. 
But all you have to do is look at this year, and you don't want to use one year as an example for a long-term trend, but start piling these years up for the last, you know, since 1990, we are seeing hotter temperatures, increase wildfire, and then we have the more intense rainfall uh, that promotes bigger debris flows. And when you think of, you know, a 10 degree Fahrenheit increase in temperatures, that's phenomenal. That is game changing for us. You know, not only does it change how we get water because we get water from spring snowmelt runoff, that's going to go away. We're going to have a switch from snow hydrology to rain hydrology in the state. Roughly from about 2035 to about 2065 in the, uh, let's just say the Wasatch Mountains in northern Utah, areas that are 100% snow covered are going to be 50% or less, most likely have 20% snow cover when that window of 2035 to 2065, beyond that 2070, 2080, we're going to have an absence of snow through most of Utah. Moab area, that's going to be accelerated because what we found is the desert southwest, including the southern half of Utah, especially southeast Utah, is warming faster than the global average. And that's due to the lack of moisture in that area. It heats up faster. It's, it's the idea of like if you're running and you're well hydrated, you're, you perspire and you can take heat off your body and you can keep running. But if you get dehydrated, you get heat prostated because there's no water to evaporate off your body. Your, your, your temperature increases. That same analogy is used in the desert. It's desert southwest and in our country and it's warming at a faster rate. So you can anticipate all of these signatures of climate change, increased daytime heat, increased nighttime lows are not getting as low as they used to. We see this frequently and that was the big signal back in the 80s and 90s when we started noticing the nighttime lows were were not as, as cold as we used to. Add that 10% for every degree centigrade add the increased fire danger, and you have a pretty grim picture of, of what we're looking at. It's hard, but it's essential. And, and you know, I think people are seeing it in ways around <laughs> them like we never have because it's, it's our, the effects are already here. And so I think people see it and it's important to know and understand, especially how it's going yeah. to affect us here in Utah, not just these national stories, but really understanding what that could really look like in these mountains that we recreate in and, and rely on for our water. Um, so thank you for, for breaking that down. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time in this interview and sharing your wealth of knowledge about these really interesting and important issues with us. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.